On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with advocate and lawyer Paige Fox about growing up with domestic violence, a detailed account of her first pro bono case, and how to advocate for friends in and out of court. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Paige Fox. How are you? Hi, everyone. Um, I'm great. I'm doing good. So, everyone, uh, Paige Fox is an advocate and is a lawyer, and you are by trade an estate lawyer and you do elder law mostly but throughout your life you've been involved you were a child of domestic violence you had to shuffle between two homes and you then became a friend uh, or friends of, of many people that went through domestic violence and most of this uh, call on most of this podcast, we are going to discuss your involvement in a court case with one specific friend of yours. So you became a friend. So we're going to talk about how it is to be a friend during these situations and how to be an advocate for your friends, how to be a good friend. And then your role as a lawyer, as, as someone who became pro bono, a lawyer throughout this process as well. And everything that you experienced there, the ups, the downs, the things that frustrated you. So uh, before we begin, I just want to give a trigger warning that this episode discusses physical violence and it also discusses sexual abuse, sexual assault. So that warning is out there. And I guess, Paige, uh, start off at the beginning and tell us a little bit about your childhood. I practice elder law and estate planning and all that area of law um, in my career. But what really has gotten me so involved um, and passionate about domestic violence and domestic violence awareness are, like you mentioned, what I went through as a kid, what I saw growing up. um, And also things like I had taken a class in law school on intimate partner violence. um, and And my professor was amazing and taught me a lot about that too. So there was that background information or background knowledge that I had had and personal experience, which really just, I mean, lack of a better term, lit a fire under my ass when I saw things happening to my friends. Um, And so to summarize or start to explain about what happened with me as a kid, um, my mom wasn't a domestic or in an abusive relationship same patterns that I've seen now, 32 years later. Um, my biological father was abusive. He was an alcoholic. Um, he started dating my mom and within a year, got they got engaged. Um, at that point in time, he had isolated her from a lot of people, uh, was very jealous. Just the standard textbook things that you see in almost, I've seen in almost every situation that I dealt with personally. Um, and they didn't, they were married, I think for like a year and a half, two years, but after a very terrible incident, when I was 
less than two, my mom decided it was time to leave. Um, so she did the right thing. You know, she left specifically, and she said this to me numerous times. She left specifically because of me. Um, she did not want me to grow up in a household where thinking that it was okay for people to be abusive, whether it was, you know, emotionally, mentally, financially, sexually, physically, it just wasn't okay. She grew up in, um, a, a good family. And so I know that she had a lot of shame with that. That was, I actually heard one of your podcasts, um, one of the episodes the other day where it was the first time I heard another, um, woman say, have a similar background story and that she just didn't understand how she could have gotten to where she was. She was like, I, I had such good parents. They were a happy marriage. You know, I had good life. How did I end up in this sort of thing? And so that is something that she hadn't talked about. She didn't talk about for years, but like I said, she got out. It was with a lot of help from my grandparents who um, she was very close with. So thankfully they were able to help her. We moved into their basement, lived there. Um, and I just remember a lot of incidents of like, my biological dad coming back over to their house and trying to get in to talk to her, um, talk to me, fake crying, all of all of that stuff. Um, and, you know, even though she did the right thing and she was able to get out with the support that she had, what didn't help was the court system because there was a child custody issues. So even though she was able to get out, she was not able to fully protect me from the abuse because my biological father had visitation rights and, you know, custody rights and everything. Um, so I was still having to go over there. I think it was like every other weekend and then a couple weeks at a time in the summer or something like that. I do know eventually it changed because at one point my grandparents had to come pick me up because he had hit me. And he basically told me that I needed to stand outside and wait <laughs> in this town. I was like six or seven years old, I think. Um, so then at that point, they took away some of the visitation rights, but not all of them. So I didn't have to go over there for two weeks at a time in the summer, but I still had to go every other weekend and stuff. Um, and during those years, and I think it was, I guess I was 13 or 14 when my, who I consider my real father adopted me, at which point the legal connection was finally terminated and I didn't have to deal with that anymore. But before then, he had had, my biological dad had another wife that he was married to um, and then divorced from, because my memories come mostly from his girlfriend, living girlfriend at the time, who had three kids. Um, so just very dysfunctional family in general. He was an alcoholic. He was physically abusive, mentally ab abusive. Um, some of the things I wrote, I actually wrote down some of the things trying to think of the stuff that he had done, but he really enjoyed like scaring the shit out of us, I guess, basically, because so he would make us watch movies like Children of the Corn and Chucky and stuff like that. As again, granted, I'm under eight at this point, eight or nine years old. Um, and then lock us in a dark room and run outside and start banging on the windows and stuff, which to this day, I cannot do Children of the Corn. We moved to um, in the middle of nowhere when I was uh, a little bit older and it was horrible because all I could think about were these children, the corn things. Um, so that was one of the things I know that he used to put hot sauce, Tabasco sauce in my milk or in like, or put, put it on my food without telling me and then tell me to drink water 
because it would make it worse, stuff like that. I mean, um, constantly yelling, did, never did anything. I just remember him specifically always laying on the couch and drinking alcohol and watching NASCAR. That was a big thing. Um, and then being extremely abusive to his living um, significant other at the time and her three kids. Um, I know I had recently talked with one of them who said that he would like crunch up chips and like dump them over the, all over the floor and make her and one of her sisters who has Down syndrome um, eat, eat the crumbs off the floor. Stuff like that. Just really degrading um, things. He, and there was a lot of like weird situations looking back at it. Um, but yeah, physically abusive. Um, his girlfriend at the time always had bruises. There was always cops coming around. Um, yeah, it, he never changed. So when you went from your dad's place back to your mom's place, how did your mom, uh, treat you? Um, how did your mom talk to you? Um, and were there things that maybe your mom didn't do, um, that you wish, um, a parent did do for you when you came back as far as, um, how to deal with that experience because you're going back and forth and, you know, you're a child. I don't know. Like, I have no idea the trust, who you trust or, or what's kind of going on. But is there, did your mom handle it perfectly or were there things uh, that could have been done, in your opinion, in hindsight, a little bit better? Um, well, I'll start out by saying that I love my mom to death and I absolutely think that she did everything correct at, for that time and her abilities and you know just how society was in general were there things that could have been done differently 100 percent, yes um but it's things like a lot of it is just really how i dealt with emotions or how i dealt with that because that wasn't talked about you know 30 25 30 years ago like it is now um I do remember she has told me since then that I would change a lot. She would see a drastic change in my behavior um, that would cause a lot of issues, especially when she started dating Mike, um, my dad, my legal dad, um, and who I consider my dad. But at first, obviously, there was pushback because I was young and I was still going back and forth to my biological father's house. Um, but the big thing I remember was that, yeah, she said my attitude would change a lot and she would have a lot of issues with me. I don't specifically remember if we talked a lot about things. I do know I was constantly having stomach aches. So she was constantly bringing me to the doctor. And at one point, a doctor told her that it was because I was too active. I had stomach aches because I was too active of a child. But looking back at all of that, it was like, I still get, you know, stressed stomach aches to this day. And that's exactly what it was. I was constantly anxious and stressed out and unable to process what the hell was going on around me because there was just so much stuff. So I think the biggest thing that I wish would have been different would have been just generally speaking, people talking about it, people be, you know, 
talking about emotions was is something that's like only recently even somewhat okay but talking to her about what was going on there so i could process my emotions rather than what i had done for my whole childhood was which was bottle them up which you know caused a lot of problems down the line but and i don't know i can't even tell you i'm sure just knowing my mom i'm sure she asked me i'm sure she tried to get it out of me i don't know um, you know, that, um, David, his name is David, my biological dad, um, David would constantly guilt trip me when I was over there. Um, you know, your mom's blaming my mom for everything, basically saying how she's such a terrible person. So I'm sure I was conflicted. You know, I don't know what I thought as a child or what I thought was right, but in my mind, they were both my parents. And so who was right, who was wrong sort of thing probably made it more difficult. But I just wish that I don't, even, even if she had known what to ask, I guess, just the whole the societal thing in general, like the ability to talk about all that stuff would have made things a lot easier because not only was I not able to process it, but I don't think it was probably talked about as much as it should have been. So it sounds like when you keep on coming back from your father's house that you really are this traumatized, traumatized child and that the reality of it is you're the best thing for your, the parent in this situation is to be a trauma informed parent. So they know how to um, deal with you uh, coming home or, or how to best um, show you compassion when coming home, how to talk to you. So this really shapes uh, part of you uh, growing up. And then another thing happens uh, in your childhood where you start to date someone and I think it's uh, sexual assault comes into play. Yeah. Yep. And it was an abusive relationship. It was not physical, at least from what I remember, um, which is crazy to me because you know i i would pick up on something like that so fast or i thought i would i think at this point in time i would um but when i was a 15 14 15 year old and a freshman in high school um it the abuse was so different than what i had experienced my child in my childhood you know with the physical and just i mean a lot of physical abuse, a lot of people who are not put together very well, you know, just from like a whole big picture um, view placed on David's side of the family. Whereas my ex-boyfriend from my first ever boyfriend in high school was very intelligent, very well-spoken, um, had a lot of money. And so I think that it, it took it the abuse was such a different form than I like was used to seeing or that I think that I would just spot have spotted right away and been like, no, you know, because it was more of a sexual thing. Um, and it took me until probably two years ago, if not more recent than that, to realize that the abuse was consistent throughout the relationship and not just at the one big incident that I eventually reported. Um, 
And, but yeah, I mean, but I'll be completely honest. So much of that part of my life has been blocked out at this point. Um, that's my next thing I'm working on. You know, the reason that I'm here today is because a year and a half ago, two years ago, I really started working on figuring out what the hell went on in my childhood in terms of the abuse from David and that, you know, all of that. And the more I dug into that, the more I remembered, the more I learned, the more it made sense. Um, and I think my next big step is going to have to be the the high school relationship, um, which I do plan on diving into. But at this point, I just so much of it, I don't remember. Um, I do know that at one point in time, uh, I, I was going very, very, very much downhill. Um, I was always a good student. My grades were dropping. Um, I had developed an eating disorder and was, I was very skinny. Um, just things like that. And my, you know, I had lost interest in playing sports, which is what I did my whole high school, my whole life, really. I was big into sports. Um, and just things were changing. Um, and my parents had no idea why, but it eventually came out that I had been raped probably a year prior to that and didn't tell anybody um, because I didn't even know at the time, you know, again, it was so the night, well, this is early 2000s, but still such a different time, you know, like this, it just wasn't talked about at all. And so it, it, it happened. Um, my ex-boyfriend had raped me after we had broken up and while he was dating one of my friends actually. So not only did that happen, but then he managed to manipulate my friend into thinking that it was a consensual thing and then basically tortured me for the next like year um, at school, you know, harassment, stuff like that, like uh, calls constantly. But anyway, I reported it eventually. Apparently, we went to go get a restraining order, an order of protection. I don't have a single record recollection of that going to court or anything. I thought in my mind that I had been making it up until I had recently, probably within the last couple of years, had asked my mom about it. So yeah, um, we went to court. It got denied. Um, apparently, there was a whole trial. There was evidence admitted, uh, phone records, whatever the phone records were. Um, apparently, the judge did not think it was enough because I was responding back to text messages or something like that. It had again, had it been right now, I would easily get the OP because the laws and everything have changed. But back in the day, that was not a thing. Um, and it was horrible. And then it wasn't until my friend, the same exact thing happened to her that she believed me. And that, you know, and then it was coming out where I can I think there's probably six or seven other ones that I know of for sure that had happened. I'm sure there's a whole bunch more out there. Um, he is now a very wealthy and powerful human being, which makes me absolutely sick. Um, and I can only imagine what he's been doing to women over the past, you know, 15 years because of what he was capable then, uh, capable of then. I'm sure it's still going on now, but to be continued on that because I will be going down that rabbit hole in the very near future. <laughs> but yeah, so. So eventually you 
start to do a little bit of pro bono work. You start to dip your toes into pro bono work uh, when it comes to helping out your friends, one specifically, and we're going to talk about uh, her and, and the, the case that's uh, that kind of was ongoing in his, in kind of, in a way. We'll explain that a little. And so the lawyer uh, in you um, becomes this advocate for her. Uh, and I guess, tell us about what it's like to be her friend during this time, what it is to be uh, a friend uh, to someone who is going through domestic violence, as well as someone who's going through domestic violence in the court, because there's a lot of you know, responsibilities uh, that go along with that, as well as being a lawyer at the same time. And I think you told me that you had to uh, dig into your past a little until you kind of got back to the future, if that makes sense. Because it's all kind of simultaneous. Um, but stuff with my, uh, with David, my biological father, that I had started going to therapy um, just every other week just because I could, I had started getting anxious again and I wasn't sure why. Um, and I wanted to figure that out. And I, you know, it was 2020. It was like, a, this is a good time to start going to online therapy every other week to just talk about the things that are going on. Well, that led down to talking more and more about my past and what I had been through. And so that was all pretty fresh in my mind, or I was at least, you know, learning things. And I had started, um, one of the big steps I had taken was to, to FOIA request all of the police reports for my biological dad and request all the copies of the court records because there was a lot of things that happened that I thought were lies um, that just didn't fully make sense, but I didn't have answers for. And so I finally decided, well, okay, well, I can get these answers. It's time to figure those out so you can move on. So that's what really started me back, you know, just like this overwhelming amount of domestic violence stuff on my mind, I guess, you know? Um, and so I started doing that and then it was November of 2020, um, that my friend started dating Derek and I had never met him. We actually were doing Zumba at her house, um, because it was all online and I would go over there every Tuesday and she had this, told me about this guy that she was dating and showed me a video that at the time she thought was funny. And this video was this guy talking to a mutual friend through a ring camera and then getting out a baseball bat and going after the guy threatening to hit him with this baseball bat. Well, between that video and the couple things that my friend had told me at the time, it was like, you need to get out of this. Like, this is not a good situation. This, I don't, I just have a really bad feeling about this guy. You know, I don't, I don't like it. Um, well, later that night, like I left and then it was a couple weeks later, I went back over there again for Zumba and I had asked, so what's going on? You know, like, did, how are things? By that point already, two weeks later, I think it was about two weeks later, she had attempted to leave him because he was already showing signs of just being out of control. He was ma major drinker, did a lot of drugs, um, a very wealthy guy. Um, and at this point, 
she was trying to break up with him, but she had sent him a picture that he was basically using as blackmail. And so that was, I mean, that was within three weeks of me learning about this guy. Um, so it was like, okay, well, let's work on that. So we tried to figure out different ways to get this picture back so she could leave him, you know, leave and be done with this guy. Uh, we couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't until, and then I started seeing less and less of her. So from like November, end of no, the mid-November through end of January, I didn't really hear much from her. She was, and then she wasn't going to the in-person Zumba classes, wasn't really sure what was going on. So I asked our Zumba instructor at the time, and she informed me that our friend had just gotten an order of protection or had just filed a police report, I guess, um, about because of a physical incident. So this took from, they started in November to January. End of January was when the first like physical incident happened that she reported. I learned of that. And that's when really we, I really got involved in helping her. Um, I could tell right away because, you know, at this point I hadn't even looked into like domestic violence laws in a long time. Like I, I had no reason to be doing that. Um, and so I started looking into it and I could tell right away that this guy was like major trouble. Um, mostly because of his resources, money and resources are everything in something like this. And so he, despite his extensive background of multiple, multiple women that he has abused and that he's on record for abusing police records, court records, all of that, he was still out and still able to do all of this. And I've seen the court records. (laughs) Yeah, it's insane amount of stuff that has happened. Um, he was still on the streets. And so right away I knew I was, I mean, I could, um, I could help you with this. You know, I can, I can represent you pro bono if you want me to, but I really don't think that's a good idea because I can already tell that this is guy, he's going to have his own lawyer. He's going to be prepared. He's been through this before. I think you should find somebody who like focuses on this area, you know? And so we found her a lawyer. He got the order of protection. Things were good, except they weren't. <laughs> the order of protection did nothing. First of all, and this will this brings me to one of the things I think that should be changed about an order of protection is we got it in February. I think we went in February 14th or something like that of 2021 to get this order of protection. It was there. It was in place. But they couldn't find him to serve him. So nothing that he had done between February, like for almost a month, would be considered an, a violation of an order of protection because he just claimed that he'd never seen it. Even though he was very aware of it, they just hadn't properly served him. Um, but it was early February that I told her, we need to document everything. Like, this is going to be a pain in the ass, but I already, I know for a fact that DV situations, dealing with OPs and all that stuff in the courtroom is already difficult because the evidence, you know, it's a he said, she said thing. Um, he's got the money. He's got the big time lawyer. We got to make sure to try to document all this. So that's where we, when we started that Google doc um, folder that I and added you to. Um, and we just started this spreadsheet of dates and times and the phone numbers that he was contacting her from. 
Um, I don't know if you saw that spreadsheet. Oh, yeah, but- I saw that where it's just a lot of different phone numbers and you started attaching, you know, because there was he was using burner phones. Yeah. yeah. So many burner phones. That is a nightmare. That is an absolute nightmare. Um, so, yeah, burner phones. And it was basically us trying to figure out a way to prove that it was this guy because the cops kept telling us there's nothing we can do. You know, I don't know how many times the cops told Chrissy that she needed to just change her number. It was like, and, and we got, I can remember one night we were sitting on her floor on the phone with this female cop of all things, which made me furious. And just for 45 minutes going back and forth with them, arguing with her, like, yes, I can prove it to you. You know, like I'm looking, you haven't even looked at what I have in front of me. Like I can show you this spreadsheet. I can show you that even though it doesn't say it's coming specifically from this guy's number. There are things within the text messages. There's There are ways of proving this. You just have to take the time and effort to do that. Major issue throughout the whole process was getting those people to actually take the time and effort. But yeah, I mean, it was just constantly change your number. And so that's why we started keeping track. Um, I think we got to like, I don't know, there's probably like 80 something burner numbers. It was consistent consistent and constant like he had all these different accounts that he was able to do it from and it just made harassing her and stalking her that much easier i I mean it you we couldn't get away from it literally the only thing we could have done was change her number but she didn't want to change her number nor should should she have to you know and so 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 when it comes to changing number we had someone on our show recently who um recommended that you do two things. One, you don't change your old number. You keep that number going. And two, you do get a new number, but you keep the old line. So the person thinks they're still calling the old line. So they can't, they won't have no idea that you have a new number or no reason to believe that. So then you can tell everyone, here's my new number. And the other person will have, um, no idea that it has actually been changed and that could actually stop. So that's one thing. And another thing that you kind of jogged my memory on, I don't know if it's on a recent episode or just someone I talked to, or maybe it was just an email that I got because you were talking about um, essentially that this person you're, you're dealing with who has money is really an old, an old hat. In, in in this situation, they know they've been through the court system now so many times. Oh, they so many times. that they actually have learned how to behave after each time. Like they've learned what not to do and what to do. So you are now in there for your first time, not knowing how to act. And the other person is a seasoned professional at this. He's a professional abuser, like. Easily. I mean, it just, he was, he's a monster and that was his goal. Yeah. It was so clear. Um, and eventually, you know, fast forward a while, but by the end of this, we had been in contact with like six or seven of his prior girlfriends. They all had the same stories. He did the same exact things to all of them. Um, it, it was almost amazing. I mean, in one of them, like, it just, we have a folder in, in the Google Drive called, titled Creative Harassment because some of the shit that he came up with was just unbelievable. I mean, like he would call pizza places um, and order a pizza, 
to their house at like 2 a.m. And so this, these people would deliver a pizza at 2 a.m. and like they would have to pay for it. Things like that listed their number on, or on her number as well as the exes on Craigslist under free TV. And so she just got her phone blown up by all these Craigslist people trying to get um, this free TV, things like that. And he did it to all of them. Um, he did the burner things to all of them. But yeah, I mean, very, very seasoned and knew exactly what he was doing. And right from the beginning, he made it very clear that he didn't think he could be touched, which in turn made me even that much more like determined to shut this guy down. Um, because he was just, he, at this point he had ruined so many lives. His, the first, um, one of them. So there were three women that I ended up working with pretty closely. Um, of those three, the first one had been in a relationship with him for like two and a half, three years. She was still very much struggling. Um, even though they had been separated for a while at that point, well, not a while, like maybe a year. Um, which, by the way, they separated after he got um, convicted, was found guilty of strangling a dog with a telephone charger cord. I have seen the video on Facebook. It is awful. He did that in an attempt to get her to come back to the house. Um, she didn't know what to do. Of course, the cops weren't listening because it was her. She kept going back. There was nothing they could do, blah, blah, blah. So she posted the video on Facebook and was like, I don't know what else to do. Somebody needs to help me so he doesn't kill our dogs. Um, <laughs> so that happened. He got convicted. And by the way, he got convicted of, in December of 2020, the one month after I learned about him. So see, we're already dating at that point. And uh, they... She had actually been to court, the court date with him. And between all the lies and everything that he was telling, in her mind, you know, he was the innocent one. It was the other women who were the issue because that's what he did. You know, he turned them all to believe that same shit. Um, the first woman that I was like closely working with closely by this point, when we got involved, so the dog situation happened. She was then, at, as of last year, being sued by this guy's parents for custody of the dogs that he had strangled with a, a telephone charger cord. I mean, in what world is that okay? <laughs> How, like, again, that's just continued abuse, you know? That was this guy now using legal action to continue to control and abuse her and torment her over something he had been convicted of. <laughs> he was convicted of strangling, but granted, he was not in jail because he has yet to, like, be char like, charged with something to make him remain in jail. So as of this recording, he's still out and the stories go on and on and on, but just stuff like that, like incredible things. And then the parents, both of the parents were, I would say to blame, but the father particularly is a, was a huge issue and a major thing that we had to deal with because he had unlimited money, unlimited funds, and would be reaching out to these women, texting them to, you know, oh, I thought, you know, I thought this would be different. I thought you'd be able to get him to change stuff that would make them come right back after he had physically abused them. Stuff like, you know, to the point that before I ever got legally involved in anything, I was just 
on the sidelines, just this friend who happened to have some information and some knowledge in, in the law got a fake Google number and texted the dad and said, you need to stop reaching out to these women. This is not okay. Your son is abusing them consistently. You've seen pictures. You've seen police reports. It's happened to you. You need to stop. Or, um, but <laughs> I can't, it's just unreal. So where do you go from here and what was the, or what were the biggest problems uh, with the system that you ran into and what was it like, uh, or the role of, of being a friend in this situation as well? I had said I had taken a, um, a class in law school called intimate partner violence. And my professor was Pam Paziotopoulos, who was just like, an incredible person and knowledgeable and just incredible advocate when it comes to DB stuff. Um, so I was lucky, lucky enough to have her have had her in my life, not only as a professor, but also as like a contact at this point in time. She, at that point in time, we, we learned in the class how many laws were just absolutely ridiculous and how hard it was to get, to have a successful outcome with this stuff back in the day. Um, and so she was able to get a lot, a lot of laws changed and did a lot of that and did like a lot of workplace training and stuff. Um, but yeah, it was still really, really, really bad. Um, the big thing that is still, I mean, it's always been, and it very obviously still is, is victim blaming or survivor blaming. It, was constant in all situations, whether or not they even meant to do it. Um, and that just needs to stop. We were at court and another survivor. So there were two of them in court together because there were violations of disorder of protection and of the other one and a physical battery. It was a year ago, July 4th. Um, they were both in court together, sitting there. Derek had once again like he had ran from the police there was a warrant out for arrest they finally arrested him he got to court and then the judge looked at and said i don't want to see you here again you need to make better decisions i lost it like i had to go out and i i went out in the hallway and i cried i just could not believe after everything that they, like they had been through at that point you know like it was such it was such, like, I mean, it was so hard for them to come to court in the first place. You know, it was constant, like, you have to do, it was almost like constant hand-holding. And Christy will be the first one to tell you that, you know, like, constant back and forth. Like, do I want to do this? Do I not? Well, I just don't want to deal with it right now. You know, we finally, they had finally taken this huge step and made so much progress just to be looked at by this domestic violence judge, the judge in the courtroom who is supposed to know what this stuff is about, who's supposed to understand this system, who I was told by the state's attorney was the best judge they had, quote, the best judge they had, looked in the eye and told her she needed to make better life decisions. Not not anything about the fact that this guy has on, is on like, I don't know, police report 25 of domestic battery what, what does he need to change? You know, like that, that sort of thing. It was just unbelievable. And I will never, ever forget it. I will never forget it. Um, and then same thing with the, the guy's probation officer. 
the probation officer basically like basically told me we don't you know there's not much i don't do really do anything in domestic violence situations because they always go back like those words are coming out of these professionals mouths and and what do you mean you don't do anything like he clearly committed a crime here <laughs> like there's something should be happening and it wouldn't be taken seriously i mean he got um in my experiences with the couple court dates that i took part in um not i was only represented one person for like a very short amount of time because again i i like being on the outside of it i like to not have a legal role in it really because it kind of traps what you can and can't do i guess um but i was i did act do pro bono work um legally for the one person but uh, for the most part, it was just, I've just been using my legal knowledge and my understanding of the overall system to help maneuver it. And all I've said from the very beginning is, is it's a constant uphill battle. You know, I, I just had mentioned that I'm now working with a different woman who was once again incredible, but that's the first thing I told her was it's a constant uphill battle and you have to be prepared for that because everybody, it's like everybody is trying to like there's making it more difficult than it already is um and i just constantly saw that so between the parole or the probation officer and the judge and then the state's attorneys who also do not seem to take this stuff seriously um and then the cops i mean i we found one detective who i mean think i'm so thankful for because it, it was to the point that all this stuff got so bad that we were on like a texting basis, you know, just because I, he was the one person that I had found in this whole, whole area, him and his um, domestic violence attorney that I was working with. Those two people were the two people that I was like, okay, like they're willing to help. And like, they believe us, you know, they, they see that this is an issue. Like they, they understand that even though we can't prove that it's this Derek guy calling from these 85 different phone numbers. He knows that it is because he's seen, he's been a witness with like the very bad physical situations with prior ex-girlfriends. Um, and he believed us and he wanted to help us. And that was really the one person in all of the police departments that we had dealt with. And we're dealing with multiple police departments. I mean, we're out in, four or five different police departments at that point because of all the different locations that all this shit was happening. He was the one person that to this day, like I had just, I had just recently reached out to him again because there's still more stuff going on. Um, he was the only one I reached out to because nobody else would do anything. They would tell me there was nothing to do. Um, at one point after last year in September, the last court day that I was at until recently, um, we had once again, see, and the other woman that I was working with, um, they both went to court. This is like, it was a huge deal. You know, like not only do, is it, is it extremely difficult for survivors to talk about it, but let alone testify to it or agree to testify to something in court in front of your abuser is insanely difficult, but they were both willing to do it because we had gotten to a point where they were, you know, able and they wanted to. And the state's attorneys, oh, and, and during a court date, 
for her civil OP. It was at that time that I um, rolled it into the criminal case. And so it became a criminal OP. So then I could step away from being anything legal. Um, the judge at the court date told the state's attorneys and Derek's attorney and me that whatever decision was made with the OP stuff for these criminal charges that were coming on, that I was supposed to be like in the know about it as the attorney who was had initially filed for the OP. Well, not only did they not inform me about it, but they went behind both of the survivors backs and cut a deal with Derek's attorney. And so there was no jail time. And he got two years probation this time instead of one. Yay. He was already on probation for the last year during all of this because of the dog situation. And then couple, you know, 10,000 more dollars bond or some shit, like another slap on the wrist. And I had put an email specifically because I was so mad and I'm that I was concerned that if something wasn't done about this guy, he was going to end up killing somebody. And I, and I'm, I made sure to put that in in writing to the state's attorneys because it was like, nobody's listening. Like, I mean, and, and I had pull, you know, I had so much more pull than anybody else who's doesn't have an attorney. First of all, you know, who are, who's, or especially who has no idea what the system is like, you know, and who's, you know, when you see this big, scary judge looking down on you or saying something to you, I mean, I would have quit right then and there had I had been in position and the judge looked at me and told me I needed, I needed to make better life decisions, like stuff like that. I mean, it's just, and so I, it was so defeating to like get that far and then just still feel like, okay, they're still not listening. Like I'm, I'm, I so how much harder it's, it is for people who don't have that it's it's unimaginable. I mean it it's we did make progress but the only reason we did was because we kept screaming about it and these women were so incredibly strong. Like it it just it all worked out in certain ways especially um see who I'm so insanely proud of like she was able to do it, but the other women, like, or at least the other two out of the three that we like worked closely with are still in contact with him. The one that I got the OP for, um, is back with him. She left in January. Um, I got, I hadn't heard from her since September. Got a text in January saying that, yep, you're right. People don't change. Uh, apparently he had, Beaten the crap out of her. Then again, she left. She was gone for a while. She was back with him in May. And then as of July 10th, there was another incident and huge, I got another picture and it was terrible. He almost killed her. Um, so that's where we're at with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, how he did it specifically, and going back to your question about, um, how to be there as a friend <laughs> it is it is difficult <laughs> um Eric can be and but it's not any more difficult than what the survivor is going through and that's like what I kept telling myself was I couldn't you know I knew that if I stopped 
talking with her, if I stopped working with her, if I stopped checking in with her, she was going to be full blown right back with this guy, you know, and she would have gone down a different path, I think, than what she ultimately did end up going down, um, which consists of great things and getting out and just taking care of herself, you know, and still working through all of this with therapy and everything. But um, like I said, we would have phone calls almost nightly, multiple times a day, just check-ins because the abuse and the harassment was constant. Um, and if I didn't hear from her for a while, like or there would be a couple, there was a couple of times because it happened a lot during the summer that I would go on vacation or something and I wouldn't hear from her and I would be like dreading coming back because I would have a feeling that like, oh, like I didn't talk to her enough, you know, like she's, she's going to be back with this guy. Um, and it happened quite a bit, but at that point, I just didn't want her to be alone because I knew, you know, like this system is already just proven over and over again that it's complete garbage. Um, it's already hard enough to deal with, with other people. She, I was scared that she wasn't going to be able to do it on her own and I don't blame her, you know? Um, but the way that he kept getting these women back and I saw it over and over and over, there were so many patterns financially was a lot of it. So luckily she did not have as much of that going on. She was more established. She had her own career. She had her own house. So she didn't have that as a concern. Whereas the other one, the other women did. And that was a big factor in why they kept going back. They lived together. They had pets together. They, he would, he, not he, his dad or his parents would buy them cars. Um, you know, basically fully dependent on them by the end of it. So when they did leave, they had nothing. And, and so it would make it that much harder to leave or make it that much easier to go back. Um, but also he played this game like you saw, and I've seen, I, I would have to like go back through my DV law notes and stuff, but like, there's like this, you know, process, like all the different types of ways that they do things to get you to come back. And you could like see it, like just cycle through when you would be able to talk with um, the survivors about like the logical side of things, you know, because it was just so obvious. Like one point he, and then the dad, like I mentioned, the dad would text these women and guilt trip, trip them to come back. So things like that would make it really difficult. And and because I was so involved in it, because I saw on a daily basis what this guy was saying, what he was doing, it made sense to me why they were going back. Of course they were going back. You know, like at, at one point I felt like they didn't even have a choice. Tr- tr- you know, like I'm not even in it. And it felt like they didn't have a choice but to go back. And then the the pity too, he played a lot of that. You know, at one point, Derek pretended to be in the hospital, made this whole pity party story about how took too many drugs, it's standard stuff, which he did a lot, but also that he was in the hospital. And there was like back and forth about it. And so basically we called him out and was like, you're not in the hospital. Like that was all, you know, that was just a, an attempt to try to get her to come over again. So we called him out on it. It was the next week he actually put himself in the hospital. Because that part didn't, because that little trick didn't work, then he took it up 
a level the next week and actually went to the hospital, at which point, of course, he was nervous and concerned and went to the hospital. And then it all goes downhill from there. You know, they're all too damn good at what they do. They know what to say. They know how to say it. They know the timing. And that's what he did. And so then that was another example of one of the times that she had gone back. And again, I mean, it was devastating every single time. But the one thing you have to remember and that all friends have to remember that it's nothing against you. You know, they're an, they're an addict to the situation. They're being hoovered back. And as you said, you you saw the reasons. You saw it with your, your own eyes. And the most important thing for you is to keep the channels open. And the important thing for them is to know that the channel is open. So obviously, like sometimes they will disappear. But to keep a constant contact and, and to try on your end or on both ends to like keep contact going no matter what is going on and that you're there for them. And for you, uh, you're still helping. You have other friends that are still that are still dealing with this situation. I'm now working with another friend, totally separate situation, who is dealing with a different abuser, different type of abuser, but just as dangerous. And the, I mean, it, it's again, it's constant contact. But like we had told her the other night, here's our, you know, here's how you get in. Here's a key to our place. We have this spare bedroom. I don't care when, what time of day, 3 a.m., 5 a.m., you know, 9 o'clock at night. It doesn't matter. You don't even have to call. We don't even have to be here. There's a spare bedroom for you and your son if you need to leave. Because I know that his, I've witnessed the abuser show up at her place un, unannounced and just being there, which was terrifying for me. So I can't even imagine what it's like to be living there knowing that he's probably doing this and that at any point in time he could be outside. And so I, I told her, you know, just know like that. Like I can't, I can't stress enough, like the importance of them knowing that they have somebody to talk to, like whatever the situation is, whatever time of day, whatever reason that they have somewhere to one go, but also someone to talk to because this stuff is so lonely and there's so much guilt involved in it that like you're not going to talk to anybody about it especially while you're living it um to have that person constant and in and, and to remind them that like it's okay if they fucked up they fucked up you know like they went back it doesn't mean it's everything that we had like everything that we'd accomplished legally everything that she'd accomplished on her own, you know, just being a survivor was not gone just because she went back, you know, like, like I said, it was obvious why she went back a lot of the times, And it didn't mean that she did anything wrong or that, you know, everything that we, that had been accomplished was no longer meaningful. And I had to stress that a lot. That was something that was like a very, because she would just feel like such a failure every time that she went back. Um, and to just, would be and it would be amazing anytime that she talks out loud and then it's like you can hear it like click She's like, oh yeah that does sound ridiculous but you know when it's all living up here in your head like we're not nice to ourselves anyway so then you put it on all the top all on top of all the trauma that they're experiencing everything that they're going through it's not going to be easy to see clearly and so that was a big thing too anytime she would go back i'd say all right well I get it. 
you know, but just know I'm here. Like I'm here when you're ready to leave. Um, I think I said on numerous occasions, you know, you don't have to go back this many times, but on average, a survivor goes back seven times before they are actually gone. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just not giving up on them, trying to understand why it's happening so you can put blocks in that so you can prevent it, you know, like the financial things. Okay, well, help them find a place to live. Help them not depend on this person. Help, you know, that sort of thing. Um, don't just get mad. Say, what are you doing? Like, you knew better. Like, of course they knew better. But everything, I, and I'm talking from personal experience, I witnessed it the last year and a half, two years. The system is garbage. It's all stacked against them. Like, it doesn't surprise me in the least bit that they're going that they went, she went back in those situations because it was like, well, we went to court. We asked them to do something about it. They said, nah, okay, well, let's try to live our lives. Okay, we're going to get 150 texts a day. And then you give in to one of them finally because you're just exhausted. And then that leads to the guilt trip. And then that led to her going back. I saw that all the time. That and the dad, the dad giving, getting guilt tripping them. But yeah, just the constant reminders that you're there and that they are better than this, that they deserve way more than what they, like, survivors in general give themselves credit for. But, I mean, it's, and that it, it's that they didn't do anything wrong. That was another thing that I saw all the time that she just felt like guilty for she did the things wrong. And it's like, you have done nothing wrong. You are trying to survive right now. This guy has got, con is constantly harassing you, threatening you, put his hands on you. Um, his, I mean, it's just, it's not your fault and, and you didn't do anything wrong. You're just a good person and he's exploiting that. Well, Paige Fox. I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. You made my job really easy today. And <laughs> Talk forever. <laughs> you, you really, you know, you, you just really did a, a good job. Um, explain, you know, it's hard to explain your own feelings, but explaining someone else's experience of what they're going through, through your eyes and communicating that in uh, a really clear way and, uh, for people listening, they're going through it. They're being understood right now. Uh, for friends, you're giving them a, a lesson as well of how to be. And, you know, you're understanding the frustration of so many people and it's validating for them just to hear your frustration as someone who's, you know, you know, as an advocate and, uh, a lawyer who's helping your friend uh, through this. So I just really want to thank you for being here, sharing your story as well. And I'll put your info in, 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 in the show notes. So do you have a, one last thing to say to everyone uh, before we go? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was just going to say there are a lot of different things that I think that would be really helpful um, for people who are trying to get out of these situations, at least from a legal perspective. One thing is making sure to document everything, um, whether it's your text 
to the abuser or the abuser's texts or actions or calls to you. It all needs to be documented um, because if you have an order of protection, if you are if you are initiating contact, you are not breaking the law, but the other person is. And and so you don't need to be ashamed of it. You don't need to hide it. Address it. Put it. Collect as much evidence as you can. Um, and as organized as you can, a security system, if possible, is also helpful because things like video has been beneficial to us um, in terms of court. Um, and honestly, just talking about it, I, I've just, from my personal perspective, like I said, this all started with me talking about my life and what had happened in the past. And I have found that not only is it rewarding to me and and helping these individuals, but it's therapeutic to me. I'm I'm, I'm easy. It's easier to, for me to talk about what's happened to me in the past. Um, and it's crazy how well, how much better it seemed to go when survivors that I've worked with have spoken with prior survivors or prior ex girlfriends because you get to hear what's actually going on. You know, you get a confirmation that you're not the crazy one or that in all of this stuff is like, it just made, it just made it seem to make it a lot easier. And I don't know, I hope that maybe she will be a guest on your show at some point because she's an incredible person. I think she would have a lot of good things to say. Well, thank you once again for being on the show and sharing all of your knowledge and just being you, you were fantastic. So thank you. Thank you so much. And if you want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click on that button. And it takes you to our Guest Form page where you'll see all of our instructions. Read the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. Also at NarcissistApocalypse.com, if you need support, you can join our support group. We have so many support group members in there because we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Saturday night, Thursday afternoon, and we have forum boards. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes on there. And if you just want to support our show, join our support group. It helps us out a lot by doing so. That's at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And if you need even more support, please do, please do go visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. They have free articles and resources. They can help you get in touch with shelters on there as well. They're wonderful people, so please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And now from myself and Paige Fox, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>